I have called up in all my years of sorcery Hello, and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Ruth, and I'm putting in a bit of an interlude while Tim works on some unexpected editing. We've got an exciting pair of episodes coming up for you, two parts of The Seven Geeses with Jason Thompson. Tim is currently also working on an entry for the Parsec Awards for which we've been nominated. We'll keep y'all updated on that, but we're quite excited to be nominated. In the meantime, I've got some exciting news for the podcast going forward. We've begun transcribing episodes. There's a list of transcribed episodes up on the site so you can check our progress. As I'm recording this, episodes 1, 2, and 5 have been transcribed, as well as the one I'm currently doing because I could just pre-write it. We hope to have the whole transcribed well before the end of 2013. Then as we go forward, new episodes will be transcribed right away. It's our hope that this will open up our podcast to people with hearing loss. Even if it doesn't feel like an important podcast, many of you seem to enjoy it, and we don't want to shut people out. Or we don't want to keep shutting people out. If you'd like to volunteer and help out with transcribing, just shoot me an email. Our contact info and a contact form are on the site's contact page. We're up to 29 episodes released, 3 transcribed, 2 more are currently being transcribed, and 25 more are available. Hint. Hint. Uh, Shoutouts to Mike McGee and Genus Unknown for doing our first two guest transcriptions. Meanwhile, for your entertainment today, I'm going to read a few interesting excerpts from Smith's letters, which are unlikely to be brought up on the show because most of them aren't directly story-related. Now, this has come up, at least on the forums, as a question, and we can't say what he did or didn't do later in his life without more information, but as of July 10th, 1920, Smith added this postscript on a letter to George Sterling. P.S. Don't worry about my tampering with hashish. Life is enough of a nightmare without drugs, and I feel content to take the effects of H on hearsay. As for his work life, a letter of June 25, 1922, again to George Sterling, notes that he'd been earning three fifty a day picking cherries, a box of which he'd squirreled away and mailed to Sterling. He considered the work boring, but preferable to most other forms of wage slavery. Plums were next on the agenda, and he believed he'd be paid more for them. A consolation he found for his boredom while working was overhearing the stories of two ex-bartenders who were among the force. Besides the notes on his work, one of the best parts of his letters is the exchange of story ideas which he carried on with Lovecraft. In a letter from November of 1930, he asks Lovecraft to verify something for him in the Necronomicon, and then launches into an influx of ghastly and gruesome ideas which he's had, which appear to be in some of his less-known short fiction. The first is about a man who dies in two different places at the same moment and leaves two corpses. Italic Smiths. One will have to work in some emotional motive, I suppose, he wrote, a desire on the part of the man to be in both places. That would be the supernumerary corpse. 
A second idea, which he lists, is actually a reasonably long and good work, The Return of the Sorcerer, which we'll be covering later on, along with the others, so I won't spoil it here. Despite the title, it's actually a fairly modern work. And the third idea he puts out is a much shorter story of his, published in Strange Stories, which we'll almost definitely do in tandem with another short piece. It is about two undertakers, business partners, whom, for temporary convenience, we might call Jake and John. John has a very poor opinion of Jake's professional abilities, especially as an embalmer, and tells him one day that if he, John, should die before Jake does, and has to be subjected to the latter's mercies, he will rise up from the dead. Well, John eventually dies, and his partner is about to begin operations on the corpse, when John suddenly sits up. Jake drops dead from heart failure at the shop. Next morning, two corpses are found laid out in the undertaking establishment, and it is discovered that the corpse of Jake has been perfectly embalmed. Smith's reputation as a sexer has been established on this podcast, mostly by Phil, I believe, so I thought I would include a quote from one of his letters to women. To Genevieve K. Sully in 1932. More meteors last night, perfectly gorgeous ones, which should have punctuated a philosophical conversation between us twain, rather than the voidness of the air. A beautiful meteor would rather emphasize the point that one was making, would it not? And would afford a sufficiently brilliant illumination for things not meant to endure the garish glare of day. Well, I hope there will be some suitable evenings for astronomical study when you return. I'd like to be out by the reservoir or under the magnolia with you tonight, and can at least indulge the luxury of picturing to myself what it would be like with the young crescent passing early from the sky and leaving the great arch of the galaxy and all the stars above us in a balmy heaven. Does the picture appeal to thee by any chance? As a personal note, I would certainly take Smith up on any offers of late-night stargazing in Auburn in the 1930s. I can only imagine how beautiful it would have been. And uh, as for the rest... <clears throat> so on, on Lovecraft's death, Smith wrote this angry paragraph to R.H. Barlow. What hurts me more than anything else about H.P.L.'s death is the feeling that he might have lived for many more years with proper recognition, financial recompense, and the nourishing food that his condition must have made doubly imperative. Truly, as you suggest, America has killed her finest artists. And when she hasn't killed them, she has driven them into exile as with the cases of Hearn and Bierce. Personally, I am goddamn sick of the killing process. I seem to die hard and have fully and absolutely made up my mind to quit the hell-bedunged and heaven-bespitted country when my present responsibilities are over. I haven't any definite plans, but will probably gravitate toward the Orient. Anyway, I shall remove myself from Auburn, California, and the USA, even if I have to stow away on a tramp steamer. In the postscript to this letter, he adds that he believes he and Howard would have gotten along quite well if he hadn't been misinformed as to some of the Texans' views, which he doesn't specify. He notes their shared interest in barbarism and inability to live in the city. Of course, even when his parents died, Smith did not leave the cabin, and indeed he never left California even after his marriage. But he did stop writing so much and selling his stories. Instead, he devoted himself more to sculpture, everything from ashtrays to idols. In this last excerpt from his letters, Smith talks in 1949 about the strange way in which sculpture came to be one of his passions. I began it almost by accident. In 1934, I enjoyed a visit from E. Hoffman Price, who wished to secure some mineral specimens for a museum curator in the East, 
So Price and I paid a visit to an old copper mine of which my uncle was then part owner. We came back with an autoload of various rocks, ores, and minerals, and from these I kept a few specimens for myself. After the stuff had been lying around the cabin for a year, it suddenly occurred to me that I might carve something from a lump of it, the result being the head of a hybrid grotesque, something between a hyena and a horned toad. I don't know just how many carvings I have done since, but the total must be climbing toward the 200 mark. I don't seem able to keep many for myself, since pieces now sell about as fast as I can make them, or sometimes faster. Some have been shipped as far afield as Hawaii, England, and South Africa. My sculptures are nearly all cut from solid materials, though I have done some experimental casting, not too successful, in plaster and clay, and have recently modeled one piece, a fountain figure of Dagon, from potter's clay. Some of my materials are in the nature of fossils, or technically to be classified as such, that is to say, they are part of a cast of mineral matters which still retains the form of an herbivorous dinosaur. The creature must have been buried in ancient days by volcanic mud and was exposed long since by the excavation of a local railroad cut. Whatever bones there were have long since been removed. I suppose what is left could be classed as dinosaur steak. Anyway, it winds diagonally upward for 18 or 20 feet in the wall of the cut. Climbing for hunks of it is a rather tricky business, since most of the wall is rotten to shale, but I recently secured a fresh supply with the help of some friends. Incidentally, the bowl and mouthpiece of your pipe were cut from these materials, and I shall make your ashtray from a piece of the same. All of these letter excerpts come from Arkham House's Selected Letters collection, which I've been using alongside for the podcast episodes. This isn't a paid pitch, but if you found yourself wondering more about Smith's life as you've listened, I recommend it. Next week, we hope to have the new episode up, as well as our edited clip submission for the Parsec Awards. In other exciting news, as of last week, we'll all be at the Necronomicon in Providence at the end of August. No plans to do a live show, yet, but we may be able to set up some sort of Smith hangout, so let us know if you'll be there. Once again, if anyone is interested in transcribing even one episode, please let me know. There aren't a ton, but my hands don't allow me to do more than two a week. For The Double Shadow, this has been Ruth. Don't wanna be all by my. Yeah, that's definitely why I didn't go into singing. Um, I miss you, Tim and Phil. I hope you're having fun in Providence without me. Again. <laughs>